Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Father God, we thank you for this day and the opportunity to remember all that has been done for us, all that has been given for us. And we thank you too for the opportunity to gather together and hear from your word all that you still want to do for us and call us to. We pray that you would give us ears to hear it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. And let me say a very good afternoon to you. Thanks for joining us for Remembrance Sunday. Now, at Remembrance Time, we pin on poppies and we lay wreaths. And we tend to think mostly of those who fought and lost their lives in those two terrible world wars in the 20th century. But let me start this afternoon by painting you a picture of a more recent conflict. It's 1982, and it's the closing days of the Falklands War. It's still dark early in the morning when a two-man patrol led by Captain John Hamilton heard the sound of movement behind them. They froze, hoping that they would not be discovered on the bare hillside where they were holed up. But they were. They were spotted by an Argentinian patrol and a brisk firefight soon developed. John Hamilton was hit very early in the engagement and realising that their position was hopeless, he ordered the other soldier to make a break for it while he remained to give covering fire. The soldier edged away using what little cover there was while uh, Hamilton kept the Argentinians pinned down. He was hit again and his rate of fire slackened. He was hit a third time and he was killed. Captain, uh, the other soldier made good his escape and Captain Hamilton was decorated posthumously for outstanding gallantry and is buried close to where he fell. He gave his life that another might live. 
And I remember his time. That is the reason why we gather year after year. To remember with great gratitude, not only the many, many thousands of men and women who gave their lives over the two world wars, but also those who have lost their lives in campaigns since. And that they did so that we might be able to live in peace and freedom today. So it's very right that we should stop and give thanks and remember the sacrifice of those who risked their lives from the Somme to Port Stanley, from Belfast to Basra, from Sarajevo to Sangin. But this opportunity to stop and remember should also remind us of the battles which still go on. Following the, great, uh, the so-called Great War of 1914, war has been a constant for us, hasn't it? It never was what it was predicted to be, the war to end all wars. Since 1945, British forces alone have engaged in 20 major conflicts. In the whole of the 20th and 21st centuries, there has never been, there has only been one year in which the British army has not lost a soldier in battle. 1968. And there is always a current conflict foremost in our minds at remembrance time. The peace and freedom that many fight for still seems very elusive. Our world, our lives, let's face it, are packed full of conflict and turmoil. And we long for God to act swiftly and decisively to make it stop. Which is why I thought it would be helpful to look at that Bible reading we had from Revelation 21 this afternoon. So that we can see how one day God will make it stop. So that we can not only look back with thankful sorrow, but look forward with joyful hope. For in these verses, God reassures us of two things we need to remember in the midst of any conflict, whether international or personal. And they are the promise that one day God will make everything new and the promise that one day God will finally bring us the peace and security that we long for. So please turn back to Revelation 21 if you haven't already done so, right at the very back end of the Bible. And we'll have a look at those two promises now in turn. Firstly, let's look at how one day God will make everything new. Please look at verse 1 with me. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I don't know about you, but I hate a spoiler. I'm the kind of guy who still likes to watch Match of the Day, not knowing what the result was. And I try and avoid any kind of media on a Thursday, so I don't discover who got fired on The Apprentice. But this afternoon, it's a bit late to give you a spoiler alert, isn't it? As those verses we've just read are like flicking to the last pages of a good book or or skipping to the last scene on a DVD and finding out the ending. For here in Revelation 21, God is revealing to us how the world is going to end. Did you see that there in verse 1? These words are written down by one of Jesus' disciples called John, the one who wrote John's gospel. But unlike what he writes there... This time he isn't seeing things with his own eyes, what's actually happening. 
he's being given a vision by Jesus of the future. And in that vision, he sees Jesus return personally, visibly, gloriously, triumphantly. He's not coming back as a baby in a manger this time. No, he's coming as a conquering king. And the message from Jesus is clear. I'm coming back. I'm coming back to reign. Folks, do you know that one verse in every 13 in the New Testament speaks of Jesus' return? One in every 13. That is the confidence which the Bible writers had in this future event. The solid historical evidences for Jesus' resurrection means that what we're going to look at this afternoon isn't pie in the sky when you die as Karl Marx once famously mocked. No, this is solid hope. And the logical conclusion of Jesus rising from the dead is his return to reign in glory. And as John has this future event revealed to him, he sees a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. So the old world in which we're living in today will be removed. Psalm 102 verse 26 tells us that God will fold it up like a a suit of clothes that's been worn out. It will have served its purpose by the time Christ returns and it will be no more. But there will nonetheless be some continuity with this world. For in the Greek that Revelation was written in, the word new here is kinos, which does not mean original but renewed. That's the meaning of the word new here. So it will be a recreated heaven and a recreated earth. I wonder what picture you have in your head when you think of heaven. I wonder if it's like the Simpsons idea. I don't know if you've seen the Simpsons Uh, But their idea of heaven seems to be it's entirely white and it's kind of misty because of all the clouds and everyone will be wandering around in white frilly nightgowns, tuning harps and polishing halos. Well, I for one don't look my best in a frilly nightgown. And the thought of spending eternity sitting on clouds dressed in chiffon with nothing much to do is deeply uncomfortable to me. But John is telling us that we can dispense with that idea here or whatever airy fairy picture of heaven we may have, as this is going to be a gloriously renewed earth. It will be a physical world, just like this one. And though there is much much about this new earth that will be familiar to us, there will also be much that is different. Like, did you see in verse 1 that there there will no longer be any sea? which at first glance looks about as disappointing as the whole kind of nightgown scenario. As no sea means no surfing or bodyboarding, no water sports or beach holidays. It's great fun to splash around in the water. I love a good hippo around in the water. But here there won't even be the simple pleasure of rolling up your trouser legs and sticking the toe in in the ocean as you go for a paddle. But no, remember, this is a vision. It's not a photograph. And for John's readers, they would have looked at the sea and seen it as a place of chaos and uncertainty. That's what it symbolized for them. And if you've ever been out there on the open ocean when a storm rises up, then you'll know that. The sea may be a lot of fun, but you mustn't mess with it. It is not safe. 
It's never settled. It's not a place of peace. So do you see, the fact that there will be no more sea means that there will be no more surging tides of evil and human conflict that threaten our peace and security. That's the picture we're being given here. Every trace of evil will be destroyed as the universe is refashioned and transformed by God's power. Now, what will that mean? Well, it means verse 4. It means that there will be no more suffering. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That's an amazing phrase, isn't it? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Something incredibly intimate about that. I hardly feel qualified to describe it as an emotionally repressed bloke. But do you see that picture? It's, it's, of, it's of the Lord God cupping your face in his hands and wiping away the tears from your cheek. Like a doting parent saying, never again. It's all over. It's done. I don't know what's been in your prayers over the last few weeks, but there is so much that happens in this world that can bring you to tears. Or if you're not the crying type, there is so much that should give you cause for tears. There are some of you who live there every day, whether it's emotional or physical. But there will come a day when God will personally wipe away our tears and say to us, never again. It's all over. It's done. And then, incredibly, there will be no more pain, no more hospitals, no more diseases, no more arthritis, no more diabetes, no more asthma, no more Parkinson's disease, no more physical handicaps, no more blindness, no more deafness, no more goodbyes by the bedside, no more grief of any kind, no more racism, no more sexism, no more robberies, no more broken homes, no more broken dreams, no more broken lives, no more wounded pride, no bitterness, no more divorce, no more floods or fires, no war, no missiles, no bombs, no more terrorists, no more tyranny, no more refugee camps, no more ethnic cleansing, no more slaughter in homes. I could go on and on, couldn't I? There is going to be no more suffering of any kind in the new creation that Christ is going to return to take us to. Are you getting how amazing that is? Have you got that promise of verse 4 fixed in your mind? No death, no pain, no hearses, no handkerchiefs. We look forward to that. We long for it. It's going to be so great. And can I just say to any of you who work in healthcare, you are going to be unemployed in heaven. And that is going to be a wonderful thing as we enter this brand new, sparkling new creation. So one day, God will make everything new. And then also, secondly, one day God will finally bring us peace and security. Have a look down, will you, to verse 2 where John sees the holy city, 
New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Now here we are shown what it is going to be like in this new creation, being part of God's eternal family. As if we have trusted in Christ, we will be coming home to be with him. And John exploits just about every metaphor in the book to communicate the incredible intimacy of that. So verse 2, God is united to his people as a bride and groom are united to one another in marriage on their wedding day. Then verse 3, as with married people, a married couple, they move in together. God sets up home with his people. They belong to one another together there. Or verse 4, as we've seen, when he wipes away our tears, that's such an intimate, close thing. You have to come close to wipe away someone's tears, don't you? And if that isn't enough, we cut to chapter 22, verse 4, where we are told, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Do you see? One of the things these chapters want to make abundantly clear to us is how wonderful it will be to be close to God. Just now things can seem so dim and distant, can't they? Sure, we have these moments when we feel that God is near, when we sense him at work in our lives, when we experience a profound sense of joy and peace, when we open up his word and we speak him, hear, hear him speaking to us really clearly. But that's not always the case, is it? These moments are intermittent. Jesus is always with us. But we can't always see him. We can't always feel him. But in heaven, we will see him face to face. There'll be no more doubt or weakness of faith. We won't need any more reassurance. So think about the most profoundly tender moments when you felt that the Lord, when you felt really close to the Lord. Maybe when you first came to faith or, or when he brought a friend of yours to faith or, or you really felt him with you in some kind of situation or another. Think about that and then multiply its intensity by a thousand and then multiply its duration by eternity that it just goes on and on forever. Then perhaps you will know. Or, or, or at least start to understand just how incredible it is to be close to God in this new world. There was a famous Christian leader and writer called John Stott who actually writes of this passage that what we will experience in this new creation is actually ecstasy. Eternal ecstasy. He says that's what it will feel like. Now I, for those of you who know me well, you'll, you'll know I'm, I'm prone somewhat to the odd bit of exaggeration here or there. But you could not say that of John Stott while he was alive. He said things in a very measured way. He's an incredible Bible scholar. So when he says that we'll be experiencing ecstasy, that is what it means. And it's no wonder, therefore, that it has been said that 99.9% of the blessings in the Christian faith will be in the world to come not in this world. 
it will be wonderfully intimate. God will be there. We will be with him. And that means it will also be absolutely rock-solidly secure. Have a look at verse 12, would you? It had a great high wall. This city had a great high wall with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. In fact, in verse 25, the gates are never shut, we're told. Because it's so unthreatened by hostile invaders. There's not a chance of anyone coming in. There is no danger of thieves or assailants here. That's what this symbolizes, is the security of God's people. We'll be completely safe. And you know, when we think of this security, so much of the conflict that goes on in the world that we're remembering today is fighting about a place. The trouble spots of the world, what essentially are they all about? It's about the desire for land or for rule over a people and a place. And to go from the micro to the macro, think about when you first moved into the place where you live now. What was the first thing you did? Well, you sorted it out and you got your bits and pieces and you put them in. And then you drove to Ikea and got more bits and pieces and you put them in as well. But you made it yours. That's what you did. Well, heaven will be the Christian's place. And it will be completely secure. No fighting over it. With God reigning forever. And to John's first readers, who were a viciously persecuted minority in a troubled time, those words would have been wonderful. And as we close, I have to ask, why? Why will it be so perfect? Why will it be so wonderful? Well, please look down and uh, have a look at, at verse 27 to see why. Nothing unclean. This is why it will be so perfect. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor will anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Nothing unclean will ever enter. Well, of course not, because it would be ruined, wouldn't it? If uncleanness came in, it would no longer be the perfect world, of, uh, perfect world if impurity was allowed to enter it. Of course nothing unclean or impure can ever enter this new creation. But that means that you and I have a problem, don't we? If we are in any way impure, which we all are. Not one of us lives up to our own standards, let alone God's. None of us can enter the new creation with a clean conscience. So what hope is there for us? Well, remember Captain John Hamilton, who, whose story I told you about at the start of this sermon. Who gave his life that his fellow soldier might live. Well, as we remember those who made the ultimate sacrifice for our freedom now, we need to remember the one who died not just for his friends, for his colleagues, but for his enemies. You see, God showed his great love for us in sending Jesus to die for us while we were still his enemies, while we were still unclean and impure and, and shutting him out of our lives. And as Jesus gives himself on the cross, we find that he pays there 
the punishment for our impurity instead of us. He takes our place. So the only way I can enter the new creation is not trusting my own goodness or my own performance, which is never good enough. No, I can only enter in by trusting in verse 27, the lamb into whose book of life I need him to write my name. In the Old Testament and the New, Jesus is described as the lamb of God, this symbol of sacrifice. And as he dies on the cross, he says, I'm going to die for you. I will be your sacrifice. I will pay in death and blood for your wrongdoing. And I will give to you my gift of purity. And so the only question that remains for me to ask is, well, will we receive that gift? Have we received that gift? Well, if we do, and if we have, then I hope that we've seen this afternoon, that it is completely worth it. As Jesus not only died, But he rose again to give us glorious hope of this incredible new creation that he's going to take us to. Let me pray for us. Let's pray. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Father God, we have so much to be thankful for this afternoon. But life is not all that it could be. This world is not as it should be. So we thank you for these wonderful promises of the world to come. Help us to trust in Christ, our sacrifice, to see us through the storms of life, that we would make it home to be with you forever. Amen.